at verse 12. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And you may sit down. About 75 years ago, uh, two men married sisters and as a result became close friends. Their, their families uh, were raised together, they shared life together, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the difficult parts. In time, both of these men watched their wives' health decline and were with them when the Lord took them home. And they took turns comforting each other during their times of loss. Two weeks ago, one of these men died, this was Elmer Glick. And so I asked Jonas how he could cope with the loss of a lifelong friend. And Jonas had two comments to answer my questions. His first comment was that God had been faithful when he lost his wife, and so he knows that God will be faithful now. And then he said something that um, got me thinking. He said that he has learned that change, however difficult it may be, is a very necessary part of life. So I began to think about change and growth and development in our natural life and also our spiritual life. And I'd like to share some of those thoughts with you today. Jonas, I'm privileged to know you. Um, you're more than twice my age, but I consider you a friend. And I'm grateful for the way that you can encourage us younger men to faithfully walk with the Lord. This message is probably going to be more like a conversation than a message. Um, I don't have a lot of scripture. That's a bad thing. Um, but maybe it's just me sharing uh, some of my fears with you, some of my heart with you. My wife has often told me that I'm a little intimidating because uh, I don't share on the outside the feelings that I have on the inside, and so people wonder what I'm thinking. I think most of the time she's the one wondering, and the rest of you don't really care, but um, I have a lot of fears. Um, you might even call them phobias. You, you understand what phobia is. It's overwhelming or debilitating fear. And this phobia, this thing that frightens us is usually... Pre uh, presents no real threat, no real danger. And most of us, myself included, experience a good bit of anxiety related to public speaking. This is called glossophobia. There's actually nothing scary about you all. 
um, but I'm, I'm sort of scared. I'm tense. My heart rate speeds up and my breath becomes short. The fear of tight spaces is called claustrophobia. Uh, my wife's mother deals with this, and I hope it's okay that I mention this. Some of you know her. A tight space is not dangerous, right? But it presents some fear. When my daughter was uh, very young, she suffered from zoophobia. That's the fear of animals. And um, we thought it would be helpful, so we bought her a little tiny puppy about this big. And she was scared of that for a while. It presented no real danger. It was just a little cuddly fur ball. Some of my children suffer from somnophobia. You know what insomnia is. Somnophobia is the fear of sleep. So I was once um, trying to split up two dogs that were fighting, and it took some time to untangle them. But finally, when everything settled down, I discovered that for some reason, uh, my boot was getting wet. And I took it off, and I saw blood. And I got a little dizzy, because apparently I'm hemophobic. I have the fear of blood. Some of you might be a little dizzy just from hearing about it. And the only reason I'm really saying all these things is because it helps me deal with my glossophobia, my fear of public speaking. And if I just give a long introduction, it allows my heart rate to slow and my breathing to steady, and then I, I can start. There's also aquaphobia, which is the fear of water, and arithmophobia, which is the fear of numbers. My point is that most of our fear is exaggerated and is way out of proportion to the danger that this thing presents. There's nothing scary about sleeping or little puppies or tight spaces or you all. But for some reason, our mind exaggerates our fear. Did you know there's even a fear, a phobia for men, a fear of men? It's called androphobia. And what's worse, there's a fear of beards. Yeah, some of you are really scary. So you get the point that our fear is exaggerated. It's disproportionate to the danger. The fear is enormous. And in some cases, there is absolutely no threat to our lives of the thing that we actually fear. There's a whole group of social phobias that we all deal with in varying degrees. And we develop strategies and ways to deal with, you know, crowds. If I'm in an awkward setting, I I try to say something funny so that people laugh. It it makes them feel at ease. Um, Others might talk loud or often, or um, some people might not say anything at all. And these are just ways that we deal, uh, we develop to deal with our exaggerated fear. So while I've sort of poked fun at our fears, I'm aware that some of us here today and some who are not here today have a very real fear, debilitating, exaggerated fear that paralyzes us and prevents us from healthy change and growth and interaction. There's one more fear that I'd like to to talk about, and this is called metathesiophobia. It is the fear of change or fear of the unknown. And we're going to talk today about uh, this particular fear. Um, We want to talk about how it impacts us 
And we want to learn how to embrace the unknown, how to prepare for change, um, how to learn to accept change in our life, maybe like Jonas has over his 100 years. Some of you aren't scared of change at all. Um, You're wondering what in the world I'm talking about. You don't fear change, you're actually excited about change, any change. You're spontaneous and you welcome and embrace change. You, You want change and you act like change is normal, and it is. But so I realize that not all of us are the same. Some fear change, some embrace change. Our our fears and our life circumstances vary, and we're all different. We all approach life different. Maybe it's like a little bit like a puzzle. My wife and I don't do puzzles very often, but I've noticed something that's different about us. You know, um, puzzles don't come with instructions. You don't need them, um, because everybody knows that you put the edge together first, And then after that, you flip over all the pieces and you start to put the colors together in the middle, right? Everybody knows that. That's why you don't need rules on how to put puzzles together. And if you don't know that sequence um, of putting puzzles together like normal people, if you think you can just open the box and start putting things together all willy-nilly in the middle without the edge done, you've got a problem. But if you do that, you're probably one that embraces change. You probably welcome change, and you look for ways to change and improve. You innovate and motivate and designate and instigate change. You develop new ways of doing things, patterns of efficiency, and you solve problems, and you find remedies for things that don't work quite right. That's what successful people do, right? They change and adapt. Chances are, if you are an innovator or a motivator or a delegator, that there is one change that you fear. And just like I've learned to use humor to make something less tense, you've learned to take charge, and so there isn't any unknowns. You fear being out of control or being controlled by a force not your own. Ain't nobody telling me how to do this puzzle. So some of us fear change because we want the familiar and we're not willing to to let our lives go. God has not showed us the path ahead and so we fear giving him control and we want to address that as well today. So whether it's the practical external change or the spiritual inward change that we fear, we all need to address the phobia within us so that we can change, so that we're not paralyzed by our fear. Change is a healthy process. Growth is necessary, and we understand that for an individual to remain an infant is not healthy. Growth involves change, and lots of change. When I was about 19 years old, I took a trip to the West Coast with some friends, and I took a lot of pictures. We all took a lot of pictures. I set a personal record with 30 rolls of 36 exposure Kodak film. Some of you have this blank look on your face like you have no idea what I'm talking about. Kodak was a brand of film that you placed into a camera that captured your pictures. It came on rolls. 
and it took 36 pictures in a roll. So when you fill the roll, you would send it off to get developed. And three weeks later, you get your pictures back in the mail. And it took a full three weeks to realize that somebody had their eyes closed on a picture, and you wish you could have you know, re redone it. So when I was out west, I, I took a lot of pictures, like I said. A lot of them had clouds on them, but none of them were stored on the cloud. And they were stored in my closet until my wife decided that pictures of scenery without people on them are meaningless. But Kodak was a very common brand for a long time. But they did not adapt to the change of the dig digital age. And as a result, they became mostly obsolete. And so they feared the change and didn't adapt. And as a result, um, basically, they, they are no more. Maybe they're around, I don't know. You don't see much of Kodak. A lack of change in growth in a business is usually its downfall. So it is entirely possible for us to develop patterns and strategies in our personal lives, even in our spiritual life, that we become so embedded in that do not allow healthy change and growth. If we do this physically, we, we run into a multitude of problems. And if we do this spiritually, it actually leads to our death. So change around us is happening exponentially. Um, it has somehow been quantified that the last three years, we've seen more change than the previous 100 years. A hundred years ago, there was a change brought to this country, and people thought that it would destroy dating relationships. The change was the automobile. There was even a song written that said, stay away from the fellow with an automobile. He'll take you too far away from Ma and Pa. Does anybody remember when that song came out? <laughs> Hope not. That was a long time ago. But we laugh at that because, I mean, the automobile is a tremendously good change. We, we love it. And when we look back, we welcome 90% of the change that occurred. But when we look forward, we're scared of 90% of the change that is coming. So we're here at the end of 2022, and I think it's a good time for us to take a moment and think about some changes that are coming next year. Some of you youngsters will uh, start school next year. That's exciting. Some of you will finish school. You'll start a job. Um, in this group, there's going to be tremendous change. Uh, careers, friends. Um, maybe you'll retire. Uh, maybe you'll reach a milestone, a golden anniversary. Maybe your salary will change. Maybe your expenses will change. Hopefully there will be spiritual change and growth in us this coming year. Maybe someone will gain a spouse. Others of you may lose one. Some of us may be home by this time next year. Some of us will experience that change of all changes like Lena did yesterday. When you received your new body, your mansion, and all the things that Christ wants to lavish on you for all of eternity. What a change. What a glorious change. Changes are coming. Are you prepared for them? And then there's another change that you've been hearing about, 
a change within our congregation, a change of leadership. There's been this talk of a bishop ordination. And in a moment, in a moment of honesty, I, I will tell you that I basically dislike uh, this uh, conversation. There's something I don't like about the term bishop ordination. It sounds hierarchical or something like that. There's some kind of rank there that I don't like. You know, we just want to serve the congregation. We don't want title or rank. But there's a change coming. Can we prepare for it? We must prepare for it. You know, I I attend uh, the pastor's meetings. I sit in on them um, every time. And um, it's been relatively humorous to hear your pastors, um, your fearless leaders. Um, they have, um, they have all, all six of your fearless leaders have made some pretty compelling arguments as to why they should not be uh, the bishop. And it has been fun to watch. There were some really good ones. Um, the arguments are pretty good. They're well thought out. Some even written out. And I, of course, have the best one. But it has been really refreshing to sit in with your pastors and observe um, that there is something healthy about not knowing the future. There is something healthy about not controlling the future. There is something healthy about giving up my will and allowing others, the body of Christ, to, to decide what is best. So I've witnessed a change in your pastors that some of you may not have been privileged to observe, and, and it's a beautiful thing. When someone resigns their will uh, to that of another, um, he sets his goals and objectives aside, and he says, I'm, I'm willing to serve however God wants to use me. So that has been a privilege for me to watch in your pastor group. And yes, it's, it's true that some of us suffer from bishop phobia, um, but we're working on it. And we're willing to place our hands and our futures into God's hands. At least that's what we hear ourselves say out loud. So I might just add that um, one of the reasons um, that there's fear in something like that is not, again, because you all are fearful. We don't fear uh, necessarily situations or circumstances, but the weight of the responsibility. Um, there's no greater thing on earth than the bride of Christ. Uh, as husbands, we understand this. We care for our bride. We care a lot. And the church, the collective church, is God's bride. And so there's no greater honor and no greater responsibility than to care for the bride of Christ. And you all and us are partners in that. It's a wonderful thing. So change is inevitable. There's always unknowns in the future, but the unknowns do not need to paralyze us with fear. The unknown presents opportunity for growth, especially spiritual growth and an expansion of our faith. So how do we proceed into the unknown? 
How do we allow healthy change to move us toward Christ and away from trusting ourselves? And you probably all are thinking by now that we just need to exercise faith. Um, we walk by faith. You've heard that. Do you know what it means to walk by faith? What does it mean to walk by faith? How do we successfully navigate by faith the unknown? How can we grow in giving God more control and letting go of our attempt, our attempt to manipulate our future based on what we know to be comfortable? So I have four things I'd like to talk about to help us um, prepare for change, to prepare for the unknown. First of all is knowledge. To prepare for change in the unknown, we need to increase our knowledge. Jeremiah 9.23 says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. The character of God is the most important piece of knowledge that we can possess. And you've heard this said differently here at church. You've heard it said that the most, what you think about God is the most important thing. Or something like that. I don't think I have that quite right. How does that go, John? When we think about what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing. The knowledge of the character of God is the most important piece of knowledge we can possess. So when you know someone, you can trust them. Um, if a stranger walked in the back and wanted to borrow my truck, I'd, I'd have fears, I'd have worries. Uh, if one of my closest friends ran in the back door and said, throw me the keys, I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me at all. I'd have no problem because I know them. I know that they're honest. I know that they'll treat my vehicle like it's their own. And I know that they'll return it when they're finished. But some of us panic when we face the unknown. We say things like, we, we could trust God if we could see what he's doing. We don't know where he's leading, and so we can't trust him. And we sort of hold God hostage. We force him to show us the future before we trust in him for the future. Do you know his love for you? Do you know what he has said about you? What he has promised for you in the future? If you don't know these things, how can you trust him? What if the richest person in America would decide that he's going to pick one person on the earth to show everyone his riches? And what if he chose you? And on day one, he, he gave you a brand new house, a mansion, Actually, a whole estate. On day two, he just continued to lavish things upon you that you had no use for. He was so rich that the things that he gave you, you could never use up. Even the things he gave you on the first day, you had, you had no way of spending that in your entire lifetime. And he repeats this day after day after day. Ephesians tells us that that's basically what God is going to do for us. Throughout eternity, he will use you to demonstrate to the universe his love. 
He chose us. He predestined us to adoption into his family. He made us acceptable. He redeems us by his blood. He forgives our sin by the riches of his grace. He gives us knowledge of his good will, which is based on his good pleasure toward us. He gathers us together into one body through Christ. He gives us an inheritance. He seals us with the Holy Spirit. He did all of this when you were dead, when you were completely helpless and you could not lift yourself up. Even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You know, um, Lena is there this morning. She's getting all this poured out on her. The riches of the kindness of His grace through Christ is being dumped on her. And we're left here in a sinful earth with temptations and disappointment and difficulty. But she, she's there and she's experiencing that. But if you don't have knowledge of that, why would you trust God? Why would we give him the keys to our life if we don't know that he has all that prepared for us? In Romans 15, 4, it says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So another way we grow in our knowledge of God is, is reading about what God has done for his people, the Israelites, in the Old Testament. When you read the stories uh, you, you understand that they were arrogant, they were wayward, they were rebellious. But did God ever fail them? Did he ever let them down? Not one time did he fail them. And we can learn about God's character by reading the stories of how he cared for his people. In 1 Corinthians 2.9 it says, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. You know, we grow in our knowledge of God when we understand the things that he has prepared for us in the future. But even that, we're, we're limited. It's not even entered our thought process as to how much he will pour out onto us. We can't even begin to think about all that he is giving us through Christ. You can't have faith without the knowledge of God. You cannot have faith in a God that you do not know. And if you don't know his character, you can't know him or trust him. The knowledge of God is necessary for real faith. In Job 28, you read a description of a miner Someone who enters the earth. He goes way down into the earth and risks his life to find one gem. It says that he turns over a mountain to find it. And we need to be miners of the character of God. We need to, to open God's word, to mine God's word, to get... Um, more of the gems of the knowledge of who God is. 
in order to grow in our faith. In, a, in our age, we, we are bombarded with knowledge. It's overwhelming. The amount of knowledge that we take in each day is staggering. And only a very small fraction of that is from the Word of God. That, that needs to change in my life. I need to be able to develop a discipline to mine the Word of God, to spend time in God's Word so that I have the knowledge of the character of God. So knowledge is important. The second thing I have is faith. It takes faith to prepare for change and uncertainty. And we need to increase our faith. Well, what is faith? I've heard it said that faith is a leap in the dark. It's also been said that faith is a leap toward the light. Well, which is it? Hebrews 11 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What is faith? If you were left paralyzed from an accident, and you begin to fall into depression and anxiety, and you realize that you will likely never walk again, and day after day you, you despair. But one day I meet you, and you are full of joy. And I ask, what, what changed? Why are you so joyful when before you were depressed? And you say, a friend of mine had a dream that I would walk again. Is that faith? Well, what if day after day you were in despair and, and one day you're full of joy? And I ask you, what changed? And you begin to tell me how you were reading through Scripture and... Um, the Holy Spirit was drawing you towards Scripture and showing you Scripture about how God will lavish His grace upon you. He will heap up treasure upon you through all of eternity. And He adopted you, and, and now you're His child. And you tell me that maybe I'll never walk again, but uh, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm a child of the King. And one day I'll have a new body without limitations. And for that reason, I'm joyful. That's real faith. It's based on your knowledge of who God is. It's not mystical. It's real. The circumstances don't change. But your knowledge of who God is has changed. So the Word of God is the foundation of our faith, and the Holy Spirit draws us to His Word and illuminates it. Abraham is an example that we've read about recently. He's an example of faith. You know, he had reasons to be weak. He was old. Um, Sarah's womb was dead. There's no physical source of faith. There's nothing that Abraham can do to make this promise a reality. The only reason he did not waver, according to Scripture, is because of the promise of God. He had a real promise from God, and he was fully assured that God could actually do it. Now, we understand that prior to this, when Abraham placed faith in his own abilities, we know how that went. Do you know what God has promised the believer? Do you know what God promises you? Do you know what God is going to give you? 
It's important for us to mine the Word of God and the promises of God, to know the heart of God so that our faith can grow. The reality is that we're all sinners by nature, and even one sin will separate us from Christ for all of eternity. But our Messiah, the one born in a lowly place, he died on the cross, and he is the perfect Lamb of God, completely sinless. And yet God unleashed all of his fury that I deserved on Jesus. And he gives me the full measure of grace that the perfect lamb deserved. You cannot add to your righteousness. It's just dirty laundry. It's filthy rags. When we understand this and begin to know the heart of God in this, we we grow in our faith. Our faith is not based on a fairy tale. It's based on what we know of God given to us through Scripture. And so we must be in the Word, mining the hidden gems of the character of our great God. One of the greatest challenges that I face with my role as a pastor, someone who has been given some level of oversight to this congregation, my, my greatest need is to spend time with God. And my greatest weakness is not spending enough time with God and in His Word. If there's anything of value that I would have to bring to you, it would be from what I get from spending time with God and His Word. And one of the most humbling things to realize is that you can tell when I'm preaching and I haven't spent time with God. And that's probably why I don't like to preach. Because it's a thermostat of how much time I've spent with him. And you can tell. And I don't want you to know how shallow I am. So faith that is based on the knowledge of God's character is critical as you enter an unknown future. The third thing I have is joy. We need... um, To prepare for an unknown future, we must increase in our joy. You can't know God well and and know what He has promised for you and know all that God is and what He has done and what He will do and not be full of joy. Our faith in God, our faith in in who God is, is, produces joy. And joy precedes Obedience, and we're going to talk about obedience in a bit, but before obedience comes joy. It's based on faith in God. Our joy is not limited to our performance, but on what God has already performed. Paul says that the love of Christ constrains me. Now, we often flip this in our minds. We think, wow, Paul was such a great man of faith. Look at how much he loved God. And that love for God drove him to ministry. It's not true. That's not what Scripture says. It was Christ's love for Paul that constrained him and provided joy. See, Paul was a man like we are. Sometimes he loved Christ a lot and sometimes he didn't. It changed. But God's love for Paul never changed. And it was that love that provided the motivation for Paul. 
It's like the moon that, that draws upward. I'm sorry, it, it's like the moon that draws the ocean upward, creating the tide. You know, the water in the ocean does not just on its own strength rise and fall, but it's because of the pull of gravity of the moon. What if there was a man in our church who, who treated his wife like a queen, just, just constantly treated her well, um, served her, um, he was a godly man, a wonderful man, um, he just treated her like, like a queen. He would praise her in public, um, and it was obvious that he loved his wife. What would you say about that man? What a great man, right? What a wonderful husband. That's backwards. Maybe, maybe he's not a wonderful man at all. Maybe he's a caveman. And it's just that his wife is so magnificent and charming and she's so beautiful inside and out and her vir virtue and inward beauty draws out this affection from this caveman that he cannot keep inside of him. Maybe it's because she is so charming and lovely that he cannot help himself. And so he's drawn to her. And he can't not treat her like a queen. Often we, we try to conjure up some love for God so we can feel close to him. Why can't we accept the fact that it's His love for us that draws us? We're not the hero of this story, but He is. It's His love for us that draws out anything of merit from our lives. Our joy is not necessarily an indication of how much we love God, but it's a realization of how much God loves us and how much He has done for us, and how much He has promised to pour on us in the future. We love God because He first loved us. And when we know God, the character of God, the virtue of God, the beauty of God, we're filled with joy. There's no other option. Sometimes God leaves us with little to sustain our faith. Sometimes we feel like it's dark and we're alone. There's no warm, fuzzy feeling of love. There's no word from angels. There's no dreams or visions. Sometimes we are left with nothing but the knowledge of the character of God. And that is all we need. But we need that knowledge. And so that is what we want to develop in our lives. The knowledge of God and His virtue and character and that is what we hang our faith on. So joy precedes obedience. David said, I will run the way of thy commandment when thou shalt enlarge my heart. David's joy in knowing what God had done for him caused him to obey and not the other way around. The fourth thing we'll talk about is obedience. To prepare for change and, and growth, our obedience to Christ must increase. And like, we, like I've been saying, we obey God because He loves us. 
and he loves us more than we love ourselves. And he knows and is wiser than we are. He knows more than we do. He's wiser than we are. And so we can trust him. We can obey him. James 1.13 speaks of the downward spiral of temptation. You know, um, um, it speaks of temptation which leads to lust, which leads to um, sin, which leads to death. And then it, it seems to switch subjects. And it says, every good and every perfect gift cometh from above. But I think it's a continuation of the same theme. You know, in life, we have, we have choices. We have temptation that's not good. It leads to death. And we have obedience. And every good and perfect gift from God that leads to life. And so often we're faced with the challenge of making this choice. We can choose the every good and perfect gift, but it requires patience, endurance, and time, and faith. Or we can receive the perversion of that good and perfect gift. It's the temptation. But we can have it now, but it leads to death. And so often we choose the perversion. But when we, when we really understand what that good and perfect gift is, and who it is that's giving it, we, we receive power to overcome the perversion, the temptation. Obedience is not a burden. Obedience leads us to security and life, the every good and perfect gift. Um, several years ago, my wife went to Burma where she visited some orphanages and, and she learned to know some amazing people who serve um, the people of Burma. And there's specific people groups inside of Burma that are being um, killed, hunted by their own government. And so these people, um, when they leave the jungle and they enter a field, an open field to plant rice, they're, they're shot at. Their villages are, are burned or bombed or or both. And so they run to the jungle. They find shelter in the jungle. And uh, orphan children and their caretakers are, are right now, they're hiding in the jungle. But Ruth learned to know a, a woman who goes into Burma to take aid and comfort to these dear people. And um, it's illegal for her to be there. Uh, Ruth asked her what would happen if she got caught. And she said seven. So Ruth is thinking, you know, seven hundred dollars $7,000, no, seven years in prison is what she would pay for being there. But she goes, um, and she risks more than prison to be there. A few months ago, um, this woman was there um, checking in on things, maybe delivering some medical supplies. Uh, but she went to visit a group of people who were in the jungle, and she was walking down a trail when suddenly her guides lost it. They went into a frenzy. Um, they started yelling at her and telling her where she could step and where she could not step. Now, these people knew that there were landmines along the trails, and they knew exactly where they were. They knew which paths led to life and which ones led to death. So do you think it was difficult for this woman to submit 
and obey their commands? Of course not. It, it literally meant that she lived and didn't die. That's what our obedience to Christ is. It's life. It's not a burden. It's not meant to be some arbitrary way of living. It's meant to give us life. So it should not be difficult for us when we know God, when we trust Him, when we are filled with joy because of all that He has done for us, we should be obedient because God's law brings life. His word brings liberty, liberty and obedience is freedom to live. When the children of Israel sinned, they were punished. They were tortured with snakes because of their disobedience. And Moses was told, to create a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And God said, whoever looks to that serpent on a pole would be healed. Now, do you think the people living in misery of these snakes looked? Do you think they obeyed? Sure. It meant that they lived and they didn't die. The obedience produces life not death. And when we understand all the things that Christ wants to do for us and lavish upon us, obedience doesn't look like such a bad option after all, does it? Romans ten seventeen says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. In order to face change next year, in order to grow in order to um, continue to move into the future that is unknown, we must walk by faith in a God who loves, loves us. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He's wiser than we are. And we must saturate ourselves with the word of God that is able to give us knowledge of God so our faith is strong, our joy is full, which leads to our obedience. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. There was an old preacher who said that for every gaze, for every time we think of ourselves, we need to have ten long gazes towards God. Think about that this week. Every time you think about yourself, just stop and take ten long gazes at God. Think about all He has done for you. Think about all He has provided for you and all that He will do for you in the future. As I was preparing for this this past week, uh, I was really blessed to know that we can move forward even when we don't know the future even when we don't know what the change will bring. Some of you have experienced very difficult change this past year. Some of you will experience very difficult change this year. But God is with you, He loves you, and He cares deeply about you. Thank you, Lord, for knowing. Uh, you know our fears you know the future, and you love us more than we love ourselves, and you are wiser than we are. 
Our desire is to, to know you more, to see more of you and less of ourselves so that we can so that we can be changed, so that we can be transformed into your image. And Lord, forgive us where we, we gaze into the mirror at ourselves and we forget about you and all you have done for us. Thank you for leading us and guiding us. In Jesus' name, amen.